Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open them back to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. If you were here last week, and if you remember, we began looking at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, that passage there through verse 16 and did not get through verse 12. And so we come back to finish it this morning, uh, finishing looking at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And last week, if you remember, we talked about the privilege as Christians to join Jesus in His ministry, uh, that we are called to do so. It's an honor and a blessing for us to do so to have a part in God's plan of redemption, to have a, a part in that work of reaching the world with the gospel and bringing glory to the name and person of God and furthering the kingdom of God. That is such a gift that God would take people like me and people like us and employ them on His behalf to further the gospel message. And so that's what we began looking at last week. And we, we started by talking about the first thing that you need to know in joining Jesus in His work is the preparation that's needed. And that preparation is prayer. We looked at verse 12. We talked about the Lord was a man of prayer, devoted Himself to prayer, practiced routinely prayer. And in this verse, before He decides to choose His disciples, He's found withdrawing to a desolate place to a mountainside at night and praying. And he's found persisting in prayer all night until day comes. And we talked about that's important for us, right? As we're going to uh, partner with Christ in ministry, as we're going to take up the, the work of the Lord, we should be prepared just like our Lord was through an active prayer life, through withdrawing from the world even good things in the world, to spend time with God in prayer and be people who persist in prayer like our Lord did all night long if it takes us. Because prayer is that expression of faith, isn't it? That expression of worship, that expression of communion. Those who have an active, persistent prayer life, that prayer life is fruit of what? A, com a communion with God or a walk in a relationship with God. And so if you're going to join Christ in the ministry that He has to reach the world, you have to have an actual, real, vibrant, genuine relationship walk with Christ. And that is prepared and proven through prayer. So it's not that we rely on our seminary education. It's not that we rely upon our talent or our skills to prepare us to work with Christ. It's not our experience that prepares us to work with Christ. It is a relationship with Christ with a prayer life that prepares us to work and walk with Christ. That's what we looked at in verse 12. So that's the preparation for our ministry of joining Christ in His work. And I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get into these other two points because they are equally important. And so now we'll pick up here in verse 13 through 16 with the list of names of Jesus' uh, disciples. Let's read the passage first and then we'll come back and and walk through it. Luke chapter 6 verse 12. In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came. He called his disciples. And chose from them twelve. Whom he named apostles. Simon. Whom he named Peter. And Andrew his brother. And James and John. And Philip. And Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This this list of names here, and Jesus' act of calling them out to be his twelve apostles teaches us a lot about serving with God. So we not only learned last week the preparation, today we learn the partners. Who is allowed to serve with God? Who is allowed to partner with Christ in His ministry? That's what we'll look at as we encounter this list of names. Now this is the first mention in Luke's Gospel of the 
full list of the 12. Five of them we've already been exposed to. In chapter 5, if you remember, we saw the calling of Peter and by association his brother Andrew and the calling of the brothers James and John who were at that time fishermen. Jesus says, follow me and do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. So there were fishermen who are now fishers of men. Also in that chapter, verses 27 through 32, we saw the calling of Levi, who elsewhere is known as Matthew. He's a tax collector, very unpopular, very despised, unliked, and yet Jesus calls him out among the people in the area and says, I want you to follow me. All of these callings were, were calls not just to follow, but to trust in Christ. I want you to trust in me. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing here. And that is just even further reinforced here in the passage at hand this morning, chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and yet even in a more, in a more specific way. Because those first callings of those five guys were initial callings to trust in Jesus. Now this calling is a calling to special service with Christ. I want you to have not just a, a life of following, following me, but an active life of service on my behalf. If you look into verse 13, you'll notice Jesus called His disciples together. And from that group of disciples chose twelve. It's important to remember that Christ had a lot of people following Him throughout His life and ministry more than just the twelve disciples. You remember back to Acts chapter 1, Judas has, has uh, killed himself. He's no longer part of the, the twelve and so they're going to replace him with somebody that's been a witness to the resurrection of Christ and been with them the whole time that's going to be Matthias. And so there's other people. We talk about John chapter 1. Nathaniel's mentioned as being called to follow Christ. There's other people who are counted as disciples beyond just these 12. Here, he's choosing out these particular 12 individuals, five of whom we've already encountered, seven of whom not much is given. Not much detail about the other seven given in the gospel accounts or anywhere, anywhere else really in the, the New Testament. We're not told when they started following Christ. We're not told how they heard about Jesus. We're not told what they did when they followed Christ, what their backgrounds are. None of those things. In fact, the only one that we really know a little bit about other than Peter, James, and John, and Andrew is Philip. Because Luke gives special attention in the book of Acts to Philip and John mentions him in chapter 1. But there are a few things we know about this group of men in general from the gospel accounts. And I think it's important for us to look at them as we start to understand who's allowed to serve with Christ in ministry, who's allowed to partner with Christ. So let's talk about some of the general things we know from this list of men. First, we know that a large portion of them worked manual labor. A lot of them were fishermen, but they worked by, by their hands. They didn't have lofty positions. They weren't wealthy individuals. A Levi from chapter 5 may have had the easiest job among them as a tax collector, but his reputation from that profession wasn't, wasn't worth anything. Most of them worked by the sweat of their brow. They put in their hours, earned their living, working hard jobs. We know that none of them were the religious or political leaders of the day. And that's not because there weren't any influential people following Jesus. You remember when Christ is dead and he's being buried, who goes to ask Pilate for his body? Joseph of Arimathea, who's a very wealthy man, who just had his own tomb dug and gives his tomb to Jesus. So it's not like Jesus didn't have wealthy people or influential people following him. We can even talk about the last part of Jesus' life. Nicodemus the Pharisee becomes a believer. Jesus was certainly exposed to influential people, but none of these that he chose were the elite. They, they weren't influential. They weren't famous or popular. They weren't held in high esteem. Some of them weren't even liked by any of the people. A tax collector is not welcomed by the majority of people. And they certainly weren't seen as worthy to follow somebody as powerful and popular as Jesus. And here's a man who's been performing great miracles 
captured the attention of the nation. And he chooses these 12 guys to be his ministry partners. Now we know also in a general sense that most of these guys weren't educated men. Scripture portrays them mostly as cowardly until the Holy Spirit comes. We know that all of them, all twelve, every last one of them, abandoned Jesus at His arrest and crucifixion, don't they? In fact, only one seems to come back, and that's John who's present at the crucifixion, yet he also abandoned Christ when he was arrested. Zechariah talks about you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. These, these guys scattered when Jesus was arrested. None of them stood with him. In an individual sense, we do know some things briefly about some of the others, like John chapter 20, Thomas, mentioned in this list, will doubt the resurrection of Christ. He's come to be known as Thomas the Doubter, or Doubting Thomas. We know John and James, who are brothers, struggled with pride and influence. They were often quick to accuse. Jesus even gave them the, the nickname Sons of Thunder. They would have their mother go to Jesus on their behalf and say, would you let my son sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? When, when you bring your kingdom and power, they wanted influence. They wanted power. They struggled with pride. Perhaps the disciple we know the most about is Peter. And the list of Peter's shortcomings is rather long, isn't it? We were quick to call Peter one of those foot-in-mouth kind of guys because he was. He tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And Christ said the Son of Man is going to suffer and be delivered into the hands of the enemy. What did Peter say? Far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus gives him perhaps the strongest rebuke in Scripture. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's a guy who knowingly or unknowingly tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Peter's the same guy who tried to kill a man when Jesus was arrested, right? He just happens to have bad aim. He takes out his sword when Jesus is getting arrested, and he is intent on murdering a guy. He aims for his head, and he swings for his head with his sword. Misses and gets his ear. Nonetheless, he, he was going to kill an individual. Most famously, we know Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, didn't he? And he wept bitterly for it. I find intriguing along the same lines in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is talking about the very fact that all these disciples are going to abandon me. You're all going to fall away this night, Jesus says. And Peter was so arrogant that he thought he wouldn't sin and he wouldn't deny Jesus. He responds, Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's not humility, is it? That's, that's arrogance. That's pride. That's self-trust. Even after he's an apostle, even after the Holy Spirit comes, Peter's going to be found playing the hypocrite, isn't he? He plays favorites over the Jews versus the Gentiles. He's showing partiality. Peter's list is long. Truth be told, they're all long, right? These are the men Jesus chooses. These are, these are the men that we read about who are going to take the gospel to the world. These are the men Jesus is going to use to establish the church, right? This is the reason that we have the gospel today because God used these 12 guys to help set up the authority of the church and to take the gospel to the known world so that it would carry through the generations. These are the guys whom Jesus picks. And what do we know about them? They're weak, aren't they? Aren't they imperfect? Aren't they broken? Aren't they sinful men? None of them have it together, do they? They're all flawed. Every single one of them. And it's not like this is all Jesus had to choose from. Again, He has a plethora of people to choose from. He has crowds following Him. Crowds, villages, whole communities flocking to hear Him. 
flocking to listen to him and, and see him perform miracles and heal diseases and just wanting to be near to him. And yet these are the twelve he chooses out. Twelve men whom Scripture will paint a picture of through the Gospels and Acts. Twelve men who are human, aren't they? I think it's so significant here that John chapter 2, here's, here's Jesus who knows the heart and thoughts of everybody. And he's not found picking the priests. He's not found picking the rich, the influential, the leaders. He's choosing low, broken, and imperfect men. And so we ask the question, just looking at these guys real quickly, the list of their names, we ask the question, what does this teach us about those who can partner with Jesus in ministry? And I believe it teaches us a lot. I believe it's very encouraging to us, isn't it? Because what it says is that God calls those who are imperfect and yet who trust in Him to partner with Him in ministry. God calls those who are imperfect and yet willing to serve alongside Him. Which means something for you and I, both encouraging and convicting. You don't have to have it all together to join Jesus in His work in this world. You don't have to have everything figured out, right? Here's proof that Christ calls imperfect people who will trust in him who are willing to be used by him to partner alongside him to serve in his name under his banner on his behalf you realize that's what we do as christians when we serve god in this world we serve under his banner on his behalf in his name what a privilege is that? What an honor is bestowed upon the children of God to be redeemed and act and speak on behalf of Christ. And the truth is, you don't have to be perfect to do that. I think this is so important because how often does the enemy plague our minds with thoughts of inadequacy and unworthiness? Truth be told, most Christians struggle with thoughts of inadequacy and unworthiness. If you don't, you're either not a believer or praise God that you don't have those temptations of the enemy hurled at your mind. Because the truth is, we all are imperfect, aren't we? Though we have faith in Christ and know the grace of God and experience His love and redemption, we fall short still. And when the enemy heaves these accusations of inadequacy and unworthiness at us, quite frankly, he's telling the truth, isn't he? And yet, what we find in Scripture is that it is the common practice of God to call sinful people make them into His useful tools and use them for His glorious purposes. Church, that is what redemption is. To redeem those who are unworthy and inadequate and broken and flawed and weak. To redeem them and change them and make them useful. We who once were dead in our trespasses, worth nothing, have been redeemed by God to be ambassadors for Christ. That is the wonderful and beautiful truth about salvation. You're not only justified and forgiven, but you continue in this wearisome world to work on behalf of Christ. This is a common practice of God. I just, let's just survey other characters in the Bible real quickly. How about some notable ones? Abraham, the patriarch of the Old Testament, lied about his wife, not once, but twice. Slept with his servant. Has his own laundry list of shortcomings. Let's talk about Jacob, who's not just another patriarch, but who's also an identifier of God. God says, I am the God of who? Jacob. And in my mind, I want to say, God, you could have picked better people to identify yourself with. Because Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a cheat. Jacob was a deceiver. 
Jacob stole his brother's inheritance. Jacob had multiple wives himself. Jacob deceived Laban. Let's talk about Moses, can't we? Who not only was sinful, didn't even possess the talent and skill. He said, God, I can't even speak. I stutter. I'm not even useful in your hands. And yet, God calls Moses to write the Pentateuch. God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Moses couldn't speak well. He even killed a man, right? Moses was a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. We talk about King David. At the time of his calling, he was a scrawny shepherd boy. After being king, what did he do? He slept with Bathsheba, most notably. Had her husband killed. Had his own long list of concubines. And scripture identifies him as a violent man. Solomon, his son, who is in the lineage, the royal lineage of Christ, is found to go after the way of the world in Ecclesiastes, saying that he chased after every vanity underneath the sun before he came back to God. And yet Solomon is the one who had the blessing to build the temple. We can move to the New Testament. We can talk about Paul, who murdered those who followed Christ and arrested those who followed Christ and gave approval to those who followed Christ. Let's, let's think about that just for a moment. Paul gave approval and permission to see the first Christian martyr killed, Stephen. The very first human being killed for following and believing in Christ. Paul gives his approval of it. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul will in his own words say, I am the chief of sinners. Romans chapter 7, Paul will say, I'm not done with my struggle with sin. It's not the good that I want to do. That's not what I do. It's the evil that I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. I want you to notice the language he uses. It's not just the wrong that I keep on doing. It's the evil I keep on doing. Church, the truth is, the, the list is long and the names are many of those people who are vastly unworthy to speak and serve on behalf of God, and yet God redeems people and makes them His ambassadors for Christ. It is in the heart of God to do so. I hope you know this passage and mark up this passage and hide this passage in your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this Paul that we just talked about writes, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal to the world through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God takes imperfect people, redeems them to be His spokesmen, His representatives on this earth, appealing to the world, to the masses through us. What a... What a blessing, what a truth. God loves to redeem broken people and make them His ambassadors. That is true of all Christians. It's true of everybody born again. Everybody given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have been redeemed. You have been made able to work and serve on behalf of God. You, yourself, Redeemed to be Christ's own ambassador to your family, your co-workers, your neighborhood, your children, your grandchildren. This church, you can be an ambassador for Christ in this church. Because God likes to redeem. God delights in redeeming imperfect people. The truth is, you are unworthy and yet you are called. You are redeemed. As a Christian. You sin, yes. We know that you will sin. Yeah, we, we know that too. You have sinned. You will not live up to the standard. And that is not an excuse to ignore the pursuit of perfection. But it does mean that none of us who are born again are too imperfect to join God in His work, right? You have a calling 
from God Himself to join Him in ministry, to join Him in reaching these people of the world around us. All your imperfections and all your weaknesses are no excuse. God delights in using such people as us for His glory. He delights in redeeming and changing the heart for His good and for the ministry of Christ to reach the world, right? Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians. To these Corinthian believers, chapter 1, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling to believe, your calling to follow Christ. Subsequently, your calling to serve with Christ and serve Christ. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's so true of the disciples that he chose, isn't it? The apostles, they weren't wise according to worldly standards. They weren't powerful. They weren't of noble birth. They were foolish. They were weak. They were despised and low in the world. The truth that you may have to swallow is that the very fact that you're a Christian meant you were at one time a loser. You mount it up to nothing, but Christ makes you everything, right? That's who we are. We're not wise according to worldly standards. We're not powerful. We're not of noble birth. But, verse 30, when we are in Christ, Christ becomes our wisdom, and Christ becomes our righteousness, and Christ becomes our sanctification and our redemption to enable us, empower us, to serve alongside with Him, to reach the masses with the gospel of God. I'm living proof of that, my school teachers told me not to ever bother with applying for scholarships I could never make it to college I could never serve God I could never do what I wanted to do get get used to that fact God takes those who are low and despised and weak and he uses them for his glorious purposes doesn't he let's take it just a little bit further we got to speed up here because I do want to finish this passage this morning but I do want to take it a little further as well. It's not just that God calls us and loves to call imperfect people, redeem them and make them able to work alongside Him. It's the very fact that God commands us to as well. You look in Ephesians chapter 2, this beautiful picture and breakdown of the gospel and salvation. And Paul writes in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And then he says this in verse 10, For we are His workmanship. Salvation is His work. What He does in, in our hearts is His responsibility. It's His activity. And therefore, when we are saved, we are His workmanship. And then he says this, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means something important for us. That when we're saved, we become the workmanship of God and we are that workmanship so that in Him we would do the good works of Him. We're called, saved, to do these good works, to do this ministry. So we can make it even a little bit more specific here. We can say it is not an option as a Christian to serve God. It is a command to serve God. You were saved for this mission. You were saved for this purpose. You were saved for these good works. You were saved for this ministry. You and I, we've mentioned before, and it's worth mentioning again explicitly, we are all upon the moment of salvation given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit Himself. And we are called to develop those gifts and exercise those gifts the truth of the matter in scripture for believers is that it's not an option for you to use your gifts it's an expectation for you to use your gifts 
maybe take it even a little bit further. If you are not using your gifts, that is disobedience. What a frightening thought to think that God has given us His Holy Spirit most gloriously and graciously. And that Holy Spirit living within us wants to work through us and in us and develop these gifts within us and enable us to serve Christ and yet we ignore Him. It's a sobering thought. Paul will go on to say in the same book, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to, in verse 12, to equip the saints, to equip believers, Christians, for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're, we're striving together to get to this unity, try, striving together to arrive at a knowledge of the Son and worshiping the Son. And How do we get there? How does the body built up? It is the saints doing the work of the ministry. It is the Christians exercising their God-given gifts. It is us, all of us, partnering with Christ in ministry. The job of ministering to this world doesn't fall to the church leaders, does it? It falls to all believers. All Christians have this calling to serve God in ministry, to serve God in service, to join Him in His work. In church, again, what an honor is it for us to speak and reach those around us on behalf of Christ. What a privilege. There is no greater honor. You have to know that. And so I implore you, do not listen to the lie of Satan saying that you are not good enough because in Christ you're made good enough. In Christ you're enabled and empowered and given everything you'll need. The lie of the enemy saying we're not good enough is only a scheme. And I promise you it's only a scheme that will prevent you and cripple you from enjoying the honor of serving alongside Christ. It's such a blessing to join in the work of the Lord. Because you are called to do that. You're enabled and gifted to do that. And praise God that Jesus still calls men and women who are like his disciples, right? Men and women who just simply don't have it all together. Men and women who are imperfect. Men and women who still struggle with sin. Who are still growing in the faith and yet who love and trust Jesus. The natural question now this morning is, and it, man, isn't this an applicable passage? The question now becomes for us, why are you not serving and using the gifts God has given you? If your imperfections don't get in the way, then what excuse can you possibly have for not taking the God-given gifts instilled in you and developed in you from the Holy Spirit and using them for the glory of Christ? And the salvation of the lost. Why do we struggle ever in the church with workers? That's something we talked about in our staff meeting this last week. And as I thought about it, it just doesn't it doesn't add up, does it? It doesn't make sense that so many people would profess to follow Christ and in Scripture, those who profess to follow Christ are expected to work on behalf of Christ, and yet all those who profess to follow Christ, not even half of them are found working with Christ. What are the, what's the reason for our inconsistencies? These are hard, piercing questions that either we have all had to face and answer, or we need to now face and answer. That's a question of your own heart. Why are you not seeing the honor and the extreme joy of serving alongside God? If Peter and Paul and David and Jacob can serve God, can't we all who are redeemed? 
Can't we all who belong to Christ, if grace is actually real and if the gift of repentance is real, then you have the blessing of partnering with Jesus. The question now becomes, can you honestly say in your heart that you are a partner of Christ and the work of Christ? Can you honestly say you're building his kingdom or building your own kingdom? Rather, piercing questions. Let's move rather quickly uh, through the third point here. If you will indulge me for a few more minutes. We've talked about the preparation that's needed to join Christ in ministry. That's prayer. We've talked about those who can partner with Christ in ministry. Does it mean you have to be perfect to join God in his work? You just have to trust God, have faith in God, be redeemed by God. Number three, what's the purpose that we are to have in this work, in this ministry? What's the purpose that we're serving God for? What's the mission objective? What's the goal? And I believe that's seen in the last disciple mentioned and chosen in the passage. Judas. Who is identified in Scripture everywhere as a betrayer and a traitor. And anytime the list is given, he's always at the last. For good reason. And yet I find it to be very very intriguing and interesting and a note that we shouldn't miss that the Holy Spirit who inspired everybody to list a full listing of the 12 disciples inspired them all to mention Judas. Not one of them leave him out. Which wouldn't have been a problem for me. I'd have been fine with leaving him out. I understand that they might want to include him to help understand his betrayal later but i think that could have also been made up later so why does the holy spirit inspire everybody to list the 12 including judas it's obvious none of them care to list him or think highly of him they all mention him as a traitor so so what's the point here and i I think it's significant i think we should look at this, see Judas's name in the list of uh, apostles and disciples and should remember that Jesus, even when he's choosing out his 12, is focused on the cross. He could have chose others, someone else, someone who would have done some good. And yet Judas is chosen and it's mentioned explicitly. And what's so intriguing about that even more is that Jesus knew exactly the outcome of choosing Judas, didn't he? But he's focused on the cross, even in choosing his disciples at the beginning of his ministry here. Because it is totally the heart of God to save sinners. Every part of his life on this earth and every part of his actions and teachings and choosing his twelve is moving him in the direction of the cross. He cares about redeeming human beings, forgiving them of their sins, making known forgiveness and salvation in the gospel. Church, that's the end goal of the mission of Christ. And that's the goal of us who join him in his work. That's the purpose of ministry. That's the purpose of your service. I'm not saying that we build the church or build our lives around seeking the unbelievers. I'm saying that in everything we do, we do it with the motive of sharing the gospel of God for the salvation of the lost and the glory of God. Always having the gospel at the forefront. This man Judas, he had roughly three or more years of being exposed to Jesus. That's three years of eating dinners with him sleeping in the same rooms as him seeing him perform these miracles and hearing him teach with such authority and power and clarity i mean he had the inside track when the disciples are pulled away and jesus explains parables to the disciples judas is in the midst of them and there's a warning there isn't there because judas was there and yet didn't believe. The warning is that you can be around Jesus and think you're good and totally miss it. Matthew chapter 7, isn't it? 
Those people are going to stand before Christ, think they have it all together, think they're believers, think they're going to heaven, and Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If, if you think you can just be around Jesus and that's good enough, take the warning of Judas's life. That's not how it works. Judas is around and yet he's not a believer. And I, I find it, again, so interesting. Jesus calls Judas knowing that he would never believe him. Knowing that he would never follow him. In fact, Jesus calls him and he's not a believer when he's called. And he's not going to be a believer. And yet he's chosen anyways. And I think that means it's the expressed purpose of God of the cross. Jesus chose Judas because He knew Judas would betray Him. He would be arrested and He would be crucified for our sins. I can only speculate and imagine this, but Jesus knowing the heart of everybody and knowing His disciples intimately and knowing the, the future was probably reminded of the cross every time He interacted with Judas. This last disciple shows us the very purpose that Jesus chooses people out to join him in work, chooses people out for specific purposes, for, for specific services. Judas's service being betrayal. Christ endures him for three years knowing the outcome. And he does so for the cross. It means you and I, as we serve God and work for God, we are to bear in mind the gospel of God and the salvation that Jesus secured on the cross, right? If that was the purpose for Christ working, that must be the purpose for all of His disciples working. That's our purpose to join in God. Everything of your continued earthly existence is to further the glory of God, is to be His ambassador in proclaiming the gospel to the world. Everything of what we do as a church should be that. I want you to get this morning that you are gifted and called in such a special, specific way. God has a specific way He wants to use you, believer, for His work and ministry. You can reach people that someone else could never reach. You can do things for God that someone else is not meant to do. We all play a part, right? We're all part of the body. Some of us are hands and feet and noses and ears and mouths. We all have a part to play in God's beautiful plan of redemption. And praise God that somebody played that part in sharing the gospel with us. Somebody took up their mantle of service and work. Just as we should as both individuals and as a church. And so if we are going to join Christ in ministry, we must be prepared in prayer right we must have a vibrant active relationship and walk with God we must realize that he will use us if we are willing and present ourselves to be used and we also must realize if we're going to join Jesus in ministry that the focus of such work and the goal of such ministry is the gospel church that is our earthly and eternal privilege as Christians let me finish by saying one more thing here that I hope will drive the point maybe just a little bit further. The Christian soul will never be satisfied completely if it is not serving God and His work. If it is not advancing the Gospel. It's a tragedy for a pastor and yet it happens so often. There are so many people trying to live the Christian life wondering why they are not happy, satisfied, pleased, fulfilled, and let me tell you, it's because they are not joining the Lord in the work of the ministry. They're not advancing the gospel. They're not striving to honor Christ in service. They are missing the joy and the abundant life that Christ gives by allowing Him to join us or join Him in work. In fact, I think it is a very, very fearful thing if you are content and not serving God. I think it is a very, very fearful thing if you are content with not serving God. The question has to be asked, has your heart really been redeemed? 
Because the heart that's been saved by the grace of God is a heart that has a desire to join God in His work. You may need help in what that means. You may need help in trying to figure that out. You may need help in learning how to join God. You may need to be trained and discipled and figure out your spiritual gift, but at least your heart has a desire to see the work of God spread among the world and to play even a part in that. It's a fearful thing to be content with not serving God. And so the natural piercing question we come back to, how are you serving God? How are you working in the service that you're called to? I hope you're thinking of those questions. I hope they're rattling around in your heart. They should be as believers. I hope you're asking, what are you called to? What does the Lord want me to be doing? What does He have for me? If Christians who are redeemed are called to serve along with the Lord, then where am I called to serve? I hope you're asking, why am I not serving? I hope you're asking, why am I not involved? How can I be further involved in the work and mission of God? The truth of the matter is, church, and I, I say this with absolute love for you and desire for you to find the joy of serving with Christ. The truth is we have plenty of openings of opportunities in ministry here at Trinity Baptist Church. We don't have near enough workers. And the truth is that we have, and you know this for yourself, don't you? We have far more in attendance than we have serving the Lord through His church. What a tragic imbalance. You've got to ask yourself, what are you doing that will impact eternity? What are you doing that will serve and further the kingdom of God? Again, we've all had to ask ourselves that question, and maybe now we all have to ask it again. Maybe now we have to repent of our lack of service. Maybe now we have to repent of our neglecting God's calling upon our lives. You do not have to enter into vocational ministry. You do not have to go with Ricky and Brandy to Russia. You have to get up and go across the street and share the gospel. You have to serve in ministries. You have to reach out to those people in your family. That's your calling. That's your ministry. Maybe we need to repent and ask the Lord, what would you have me surrender my life to? What would you have me do with the rest of my years and time on this earth? I do not want to waste it. Maybe you have to ask, why am I not bearing the fruit of service or the desire of service and involvement? Do I know grace? Do I have saving faith? Do I trust in Christ? Sometimes I can be a dreamer, and in studying this passage, I most certainly was a dreamer. My prayer and my hope to the Lord was that this passage, He would use it to touch the hearts of people and that we would just simply be overwhelmed with flocks of people wanting to serve the Lord. That they would see that, hey, I have a relationship with God. I have a desire to serve Him. And I want people to know the Gospel. And if He can use imperfect people like Peter, James, and John, He can use me. My longing, my deep dream for the church right now would be that we would have to figure out ways to plug people in. People come just wanting to try something, wanting to be trained and wanting to be discipled and wanting to do the work of God. They're no longer content with just consuming. No, instead, they've tasted the grace of God and they know that there is abundant joy in following Christ and joining Him in ministry and He's got a place for me to serve. Again, there's no shortage of work. There's only a shortage of workers. There's, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of places to sow the seed. There's a lot of places to start reaping the harvest. The laborers are few, right? Didn't Jesus say that even in His time? Pray and beg the Lord that He would provide laborers for His harvest because the fields are white. They're ready. The people in Weatherford are ready 
question just becomes, will you heed the Lord's calling and go all in in your life and serving Him? Because that's the calling, that's the expectation, that's the fruit, and that's the satisfaction of the Christian life. Knowing the grace of God in salvation, experiencing the grace of God in service. This passage touched my heart, and I hope and I pray it touches your heart. As we look at what seems to be just a list of names, I think we can learn something about who Christ calls to join Him in work. He calls those whom He redeems, right? So let's do that, church. Let's join Him in His work. Father, I pray that You would place it upon our hearts what You would have us spend our lives in doing for Your glory. What can we give ourselves to that would honor You, O Lord? What can we give our lives to that would further the Gospel and honor You that, oh God, I, I, I want us to be a people, each and every one of us who stand before You in the end and hear You say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm pleased with Your life. I'm pleased with the service that You rendered. Oh God, break down the pride in our hearts and break down the excuses that come from our flesh. Break down the lies of the enemy who heaps guilt upon us but can never condemn us. Let us serve You in humility. Oh God, as You have allowed me to look at these people and see their hearts and laugh with them and cry with them and talk with them, I know how many of them are so gifted in such unique ways to reach people for You, to honor You, to serve Your church for Your glory. I pray, O oh Lord, that You would put it within our hearts to take up the mantle of discipleship and work for You. To get dirty for the Gospel, to get in the muck and mire of people's lives and to work and walk through the weeds so that people may know You. God, I pray our lives would be given to You. That as You bless us with things, we use them to bless others. As we go on vacation, we go with the ever-mindful eye of reaching somebody with the Gospel. As we go eat breakfast, as we visit with one another, we're encouraging each other and praying together, Lord. I the possibilities are endless. I'm thankful that you called those disciples of yours whom you used in such a mighty way and I'm thankful you call people who are just like them, still struggling with this life, longing to be home with you where we're glorified and yet willing to work on your behalf. God, we have an awesome responsibility to those who are going to come after us who need us to be faithful to join you in ministry that they may hear the gospel and believe and thank you for people like my grandfather and my mother my my whole family my grandmother my pastor Glenn Carroll who was faithful to share the gospel with me let me be faithful in return in Jesus name we pray Amen.